You're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series on Ephesians. Thanks for joining me, Nathan Johnson, in an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let's dive into the lesson for the day. Welcome to Lesson 20 of the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the book of Ephesians. Over the past several lessons, we've looked at the mystery which Paul talks about in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Now, let me read the passage starting in verse 7 to help remind us of the immediate context. Paul writes this, In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, which are in heaven and on earth. As we discussed previously, the mystery is quite literally Jesus himself. The mystery of his will is that we might not only experience his salvation and redemption, but that we would seek after him, have relationship and intimacy with him, and that everything in our lives will be built upon and around him. Now, as a fresh reminder, Paul declares in Colossians 1, 26-27, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Romans 11.36 tells us, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Again, this is all about Jesus Christ and all that he longs to do and accomplish in and through us. In today's lesson, we are going to examine five aspects that Paul mentions in relationship to this mystery. Let me read Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 again. Paul says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, which are in heaven and on earth. Paul begins with the statement that this mystery is according to his good pleasure. Now, some English translations say according to his purpose. Now, that Greek word, good pleasure or purpose, is only used nine times in the New Testament. And it's often translated well-pleasing, desire, or intention. Which is why some of the translations say purpose rather than good pleasure. But in either case, the emphasis remains the same, which is the concept that the mystery of God's will is his choice, his delight, pleasure, satisfaction, and his desire. I once heard it said that delight in any absent thing produces longing for it. Because the fullness of this mystery has not yet fully come, God delights and longs to make it known and see it realized on this earth. Which ties back to this idea earlier in verse 8, which tells us that God has lavished his grace upon us. This isn't a trickle of grace that he has let slip out. Rather, this is a Niagara waterfall of grace that has been dumped, poured forth, and lavished upon us. It is his delight and joy to lavish grace, just as it is his satisfaction and pleasure to make known the mystery. It is his good pleasure to reveal that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews. 
see Ephesians 3, 8 and 9. That, that, <clears throat> that he longs to indwell us by his Holy Spirit, as Colossians 1, 26 and 27 says. And that everything in heaven and on earth is to be focused and centered upon Jesus Christ, as Romans eleven thirty six tells us. So not only does Paul say that making known the mystery is God's pleasure, he also tells us the purpose. Paul writes, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. The Greek word for purpose in this passage gives this idea of setting something beyond oneself or to plan and to purpose in advance or perhaps better, to determine. Some scholars would render this concept as the purpose is God's own free determination originating in his own gracious mind. But it is important to note that this purpose is in Christ. In other words, Jesus is the instrument or the means by which the purpose was affected. So you could see the passage as Jesus made this possible or caused this thing to happen. Now, what's fascinating about this word in is that in the Greek, in doesn't portray movement. Now, there's a Greek word that means to go into something. And there's another Greek word that means to come out of or from something. But in has this idea of rest, stationary, or no movement. Uh, for example, right now, I'm in the video studio. Now, we're not talking about when I came into the room or when I'm gonna leave from it, merely I am remaining within the room itself. That's this idea of in. When you look at our passage, the purpose didn't come from Jesus or out of him, rather the purpose rests within him. See, the purpose is at his heart. He is the center of it. He is the one who is causing the purpose to happen and the purpose itself is focused on Jesus Christ. So what is this purpose that is centered upon and caused by Christ? Paul says, which he purposed in himself as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. The plan is that all things will be united in Christ in the fullness of time. The Greek word for plan literally means household manager, but it conveys this idea of administration or dispensation or plan or effect. In, in essence, it is the position of a manager, an overseer, or a steward of a household or an economy. It's not a period of time, but it's a mode of or a way of dealing with the administration of affairs. In his commentary, Adam Clark stated it this way, this word is the same as our word economy signifying the plan which the master of a family or his steward has established for the management of the family. It signifies also a plan for the management of any sort of business, and here it means the dispensation of the gospel, that plan by which God has provided salvation for a lost world, and according to which he intends to gather all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, into one church under Jesus Christ, their head and governor. Now, add on to that concept, this idea of in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time is the idea of filling something to capacity. In this case, time. Uh, if I had a glass and I was to fill it to the point where you could not add even a single drop, drop of water more into it, it, we would say it's, well, it's full. Paul is saying that once time is completely filled up, the plan will be completed. Now, in Greek, there are two main ideas for time. The word chronos refers to the quantity of time, whereas kairos expresses the quality of time. 
uh, when you look down and see how much time is left in this lesson, you are dealing with chronos. Now, when you spend an afternoon with a close friend and you declare, wow, we had such a great time, that is kairos. In our passage, Paul uses kairos, emphasizing that God isn't so concerned with the actual time or the date on a calendar of when this fullness of time will happen, since God is eternal, but rather his emphasis on the quality of the time itself. In other words, we can better understand the fullness of time as when God determines the timing to be right. As a similar thought, the return of Christ is determined to happen at a certain time. And in our culture, we are so bombarded with predictions and ideas as to when this will take place. See, it's all about the chronos time of dates and years. But Jesus told his disciples that the only that only the Father knows the chronos day and the hour of the event. Instead, we are told the kairos timing of the event, when the quality of time looks a certain way. Well, what we can draw from all this is that God moves and acts not so much based on a calendar of time as we often desire him to, but rather in a quality or rightness of time when he deems the situation and condition to be right. So get this, with great delight and pleasure, Jesus is making known the mystery of his will, and he has a strategic plan that is being worked out in our midst even to this day, and will continue to do so until God's perfect timing determines the completion and the end. On an interesting side note, from a Jewish cultural perspective, the Jews believed that God was sovereignly working to bring all of history to a promised climax. So the question becomes, well, what is that plan that we were just talking about? Or what is God's promised climax? What is the point of it all? Well, Paul triumphantly declares it is to unite all things together in Christ. See, God's great plan and desire is that in the completion of time, all things might come under the headship and authority of Jesus Christ. Now the word unite all things is a really long Greek word which I'm not gonna pronounce, but it has this idea of to gather together into one or to summarize. It is only used two places in the New Testament, and one obviously is here, and the other is in Romans 13, verse nine. So let me read verses eight through 10 of Romans chapter 13. It says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not covet. And if there are any other commandments, are summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love works no evil to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul says if you were to take the entirety of the law and summarize it, well, you would discover love. For love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, going back into our passage in Ephesians, Paul says that God's great desire is to summarize or unite or bring together all things in Christ. See, in Paul's day, there was tremendous division. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and masters, the physical and the spiritual. But God's plan is to bring together, to summarize, to unite all things in Christ. Jesus is to be the head of the body, the fullness of all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
listen to a few of Paul's other statements along the same line. Galatians 3, verses 28 through 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Colossians 3.11 says, In Christ, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Ephesians 2.13-15 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So just as you would summarize the entirety of the law as love, so too God is summarizing or bringing together or uniting all things in Christ which re-emphasizes the mystery itself, that Jesus is the head. He is the focus. He is the North Star that we set our compass to. He is the centrality of the Christian life. For from him and through him and to him are all things. See, this purpose and plan that was determined before the creation of the world, as Ephesians 1.4 tells us, and will find its completion in the fullness of time, is found in one single place, Jesus Christ. And it is he who is bringing it about in and through our lives. One other thought with this point is this idea of this word, unite all things. It's in the middle voice. Now, don't get lost here, but in English, we mainly use active and passive voice. Now, active voice is where the subject is doing the action. Now, the classic example would be the boy hit the ball. The boy who is a subject is doing the action of hitting the ball. Passive voice means that the subject receives the action. So in this case, the ball hits the boy. The boy, who is a subject, receives the action, which is the ball hitting him. But middle voice means that the subject is not only doing the action, but is also receiving the action itself. So if I told you that this morning I shaved my face, well, I'm the one doing the action of shaving, but I'm also the one receiving the benefit of that action. In our passage, God is the one doing the action of uniting all things together in Christ. But it's in the middle voice, which means he's also the one receiving the benefit of the action. He is uniting all things for himself. Again, reflecting the purpose or the result of the action. See, God is bringing the entire world, both nature and humanity, as Romans 8 alludes to, back under the rule, the control, the power, the authority, and the headship of Jesus Christ. See, this doesn't mean that everyone will be saved, but the emphasis is that everything is finding its consummation, its fulfillment, and its purpose in Jesus. As Philippians chapter 2, verse 9-11 through 11 proclaims, Therefore God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now all that brings us to our final aspect of this passage, which is the place. Paul says that God is uniting all things in Christ, which are in heaven and on earth. 
this isn't a localized event, but truly for all things in all places. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul is talking about the incredible power of God and says that Jesus has been placed far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. If you need a visual, think of a funnel. Uh, You place something at the top of the funnel and it swirls downward and it becomes compact until it comes out at a single point. Well, in a similar sense, all things in all places are swirling downward, finding its completion, its fulfillment, and its purpose in one great mystery, which is Jesus himself. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, let's take this lesson and apply it into our lives. I keep coming back to this idea, but is your life truly from him? Are you living your life trying to appease God or have you experienced the indwelling life of Christ within you that is bringing about his purpose, his plan, his truth, and his very life in and through you? Is your life from him? Is it being lived through his empowerment and resource? Or as I quoted Ian Thomas in a previous lesson, is the only explanation for your life Jesus Christ? And is your life truly unto him? Oswald Chambers called it my utmost for his highest. Paul encouraged in Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Is your life truly from him and through him and to him? Is Jesus the great mystery of your life? Is he preeminent, central, the North Star, your focus? Paul declared, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say the very same thing? For in him... We have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, which are in heaven and on earth. Oh, that we might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Are you getting the flow and the tone of this blessing section in Ephesians chapter 1? Every blessing we have finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. As 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. See, Christianity and our lives as believers are to be all about the centrality of one single thing, Jesus. That's so good. Now, next time, we are going to examine Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, and discover what our great inheritance as believers is. You'll never guess what this inheritance is. But I will let you study this out this week if you have some time. Well, thanks again for joining me for today's study. 
If you'd like to see an outline of the study or read a commentary version of this passage, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians 20 for lesson number 20. You can also check out all the previous studies in Ephesians by visiting deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. And until next time, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ. See you then. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus Christ, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you would like to view the video version of this study, you can do so at deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians.